gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And today we have... Dr. R. Scott Clark with us, and I guess this is the third time that you've been on, and we're going to be talking about covenant theology and the church. This is the beginning of our series on the church, and I am going to link in the episode notes our other two episodes with you where we talked about covenant theology and one where we talked about baptism, so if you haven't listened to those, uh, we'll dig into those topics a little bit more on those episodes, but maybe just to start off, for those who maybe don't understand covenant theology, could you give an overview of what is covenant theology? Hi, gals. It's good to be with you. I guess I can say that. Sometimes I've been given the impression that uh, gals is politically incorrect, but since you call yourselves theology gals, then I think... (laughs) Then it's okay. I think it's okay. It's, It's in the name. Um... Uh, covenant theology is, depending on uh, whom you ask in, in the Reformed tradition, uh, it is Reformed theology. B.B. Uh, Warfield said it was the architectonic principle of Reformed theology, the, the, the very foundation of it. Uh, it, uh, it. Another way of putting it is to say that it's our way of understanding how Scripture works, uh, how it all hangs together. And it's not just ours. Uh, uh, this is something that you find in some of the earliest Christian theologians in the post-canonical Christian tradition. Uh, for example, the Epistle of Barnabas in A.D. 120 was responding to Gnostics and others who were dividing up the Old Testament from the New Testament and separating them radically so that the Old Testament was really not for us anymore. And that might sound familiar to some uh, American fundamentalists and evangelicals and 
uh, who have been told the same thing. I've had that conversation with people. Um, and Barnabas uh, was writing against the Gnostics and saying, no, uh, there's one covenant, and it unites all of Scripture. And uh, we're, we agree with Barnabas. Uh, in the 150s AD, Justin, uh, Justin Martyr, uh, made similar arguments against similar opponents. And in 170 AD, uh, Irenaeus, uh, the uh, pastor in Lyon, said the same thing uh, in, in roughly the same way. So this idea that there's one covenant of grace, multiple administrations, is an ancient Christian idea. We think it's a biblical idea. And um, and so that's the very short way of accounting for covenant theology. God's promises to us, I will be a God to you and to your children, is the way it gets expressed in Genesis 17 and in Jeremiah uh, 32. Um, but it, um, it also encompasses a covenant of works before the fall. God came to Adam and said, uh, you can enter into eternal life, in effect, but here are the conditions under which you can do it. You, you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Those are, that's what he was expected to do, and he failed uh, the covenant of works. So God made a covenant of grace, uh, the seed of the woman. Um, uh, will do battle with the, with the serpent. Uh, the serpent will strike his heel, and the seed of the woman will crush his head. And, and so that's the covenant of grace that unifies all of Scripture. It's, we see it in Genesis 6 explicitly. God made a covenant with Noah. It's a covenant of grace to save uh, hit that little church on the ark. Uh, as I say, he restated the covenant of grace, uh, Genesis 12, 15, and 17, in typological ways to Abraham in, relative to the, uh, the seed, uh, as many as the stars on the, in the sky, uh, the land, and then finally 17, <clears throat> sorry, relative to... Uh, the, the sign of the covenant, um, uh, that God would be a, a God to him, to Abraham, and to his seed, uh, the outward administration uh, of that. And that works all through redemptive history. It gets narrowed down uh, under um, national Israel, under Moses, and it, it's given a, a, a legal national character temporarily uh, from uh, about 1500 uh, B.C. Uh, to uh, the advent of Christ. Uh, we could also talk about a Davidic administration of the covenant of grace. So these are all uh, various administrations of the covenant of grace. And, um, you know, one of the more difficult topics in Reformed theology, at least it, it seems for, so for some people, is the idea that um, in some ways the covenant of works that God made with um, Adam was restated uh, in a, to teach the Israelites the greatness of their sin and misery at Sinai. Uh, but it, but uh, we all agree that the covenant of works was um, rearticulated and, administer, and administered in multiple ways, but it's one covenant of grace and it unites, unites all of redemptive history, coming to uh, fruition in the new covenant, which is just the new administration of the covenant of grace. And it's new, according to the New Testament, whether you're looking at the book of Hebrews or Paul in Second uh, Corinthians 3 or Galatians. It's uh, particularly Galatians 3 and 4. It's new relative to Moses, uh, that Moses is, strictly speaking, the Old Covenant. So that's, uh, that's probably more than you wanted, but that's a brief overview of covenant theology, that this uh, word that occurs uh, hundreds of times in the Hebrew Bible, and I think something like 27 times in the New Testament. And, and uh, we say, whether it's expressed explicitly or implied, it, it unites all of Scripture. Thank you. That's actually very helpful, um, especially for those of us who uh, may or may not have grown up 
in a, a, a covenant um, in a covenant theology understanding of Scripture. Uh, and so we're, many of us are still learning how to apply it in various aspects. Um, one of the things that's very common, or one of the, the ways of understanding Scripture that's very common in, in many churches around us is uh, dispensationalism. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism? Sure. Uh, dispensationalism is a, a theory that developed in the uh, first half of the 19th century and has undergone uh, uh, different um, revisions, uh, was revised um, somewhat at the end of the 19th century, revised again in the middle of the 20th century, and revised again at the end of the 20th century. Uh, so there are multiple versions of it, but uh, in the, the broad outline, I think most of the versions agree that uh, at the center of God's plan for humanity and for salvation is that he would have a national people. Um, so where traditionally uh, the early fathers and um, Reformed theology following them uh, saw Christ as the center of God's saving plan, dispensationalism tends to see God's plan of having a national people to be more or less at the center of of redemptive history. And, um, and, and, and so you have two kinds of peoples in uh, uh, dispensational theology. You have an earthly people and uh, a spiritual slash heavenly people, and uh, that's the, the New Testament church. Um, at least in some forms, dispensationalists have talked about seven different dispensations, and sometimes they have given the impression, and, and um, this is a matter that's debated, dispensationalists say, well, no, we, we never really said that, and, and others have said, well, no, yes, you did. So this is a debated matter, but it looks to us as if in some versions, the older versions uh, prior to the mid-20th century, dispensationalists were saying that there were multiple ways of salvation, um, which is highly problematic. And, and actually one of the kinds of ideas that the early Christians rejected, and one of the reasons they used, appealed to the covenant, as they said, uh, to unify Scripture. So, uh, dispensationalists tend to think about, uh, they tend to be premillennial in their eschatology, which is a pretty important feature of dispensationalism. They tend to be, most of them, pre-tribulation premillennialists, and, and um, they're looking forward to, now that Christ has come, uh, when they call this the church age that we're in, uh, they're looking forward to uh, certain phenomena, uh, a rapture of Christians out of the earth, seven years of tribulation, and then uh, a thousand-year kingdom on the earth, millennial kingdom, a literal thousand years, uh, which is a, that idea of a literal thousand years is not new. That goes back to the, the, some of the early fathers. But this is a different version of that kind of thousand-year theory, that, traditionally known as chiliasm or millennialism. Because in this version, uh, Christ, uh, the, the temple is rebuilt, the sacrifices are reinstituted, for uh, as a memorial of Christ's death, and he's sitting on a, a throne uh, watching Levitical priests offer sacrifices for a thousand years. And, and, um, and then, uh, depending on which version you're looking at, you, you could have you know, two returns of Jesus, uh, sometimes three. Uh, it's a complex system. Um, and, uh, but the essence of it is the two peoples scheme. So, what, what, however one works out the eschatology, because there are different eschatologies. For example, there's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, 
Um, so some people have us being raptured out in the middle of the seven years. Some people have us raptured out at the end of the seven years. And, and most, you know, the most popular version has us raptured out at the beginning of the seven years. And of course, traditionally, Reformed Christians have said, what are you talking about? There's no such thing as a literal thousand years. Most of us have uh, concluded that. There have been some Reformed people who, for a time in the 16th and 17th centuries, look forward to a literal thousand years. Um, but again, not that not, not the same literal thousand years, not with Jesus sitting on a throne and not with the reinstitution of sacrifices and so forth. But um, uh, for the most part, Reformed people, especially with the rise of dispensationalism, have said, well, no, we see uh, scriptures being about salvation in Christ and that the promise has always been uh, about salvation in Christ and Israel works for Jesus. The, the, nation, the reason there was a national people was to serve as a giant, bloody, a uh, thousand years or fifteen hundred years sermon illustration, and um, so when that uh, that was all fulfilled in Christ on the cross, uh, and he he wasn't any kind of a Plan B. That's one of the Reformed criticisms of dispensationalism is it makes the cross a kind of Plan B. And of course, the dispensationalists respond by saying, "Well, no, that's not what we mean." But that's the way those deb- debates go, and. Uh, we say, no, it was always the plan that God the Son, who was involved in redemptive history from the very beginning in the garden, it was he who was, came in the, in the spirit of the day, literally, um, uh, and uh, it was he who uh, was with the Israelites, uh, you know, it was he who uh, you know, dealt with uh, Abraham, who went between the pieces in Genesis 15 uh, before he was incarnate, it was he who wrestled with Jacob, he was always with us. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, and that rock was Christ, so that he was always with his people. And, um, and I like to say that he was in, with, and under those types and shadows all through redemptive history, and finally uh, became incarnate by the Holy Spirit uh, in, in and through the womb of the Virgin Mary, was born, obeyed in our place um, as the fulfillment of all of the promises. He is the Israel of God. He's the obedient one. Israel is disobedient, always disobedient. And the prophets are always prosecuting them for their disobedience. And here he comes, the Israel of God, uh, obedient, uh, the obedient son. You know, national Israel was the disobedient son. And um, he was uh, crucified, dead raised, and uh, ascended. His righteousness is credited to us. And um, it, so it's always been one people, multiple administrations. So that's your big choice. Uh, are there two peoples or essentially one people, um, right? Uh, Pre-Jewish people, there were uh, believers, uh, Noah at all, and Abraham before he was circumcised, uh, Gentiles essentially, and then a temporary national Jewish people pointing to Christ. And, and then finally in Christ, the dividing wall according to Hebrew or Ephesians 2 has been broken down. And uh, of course, we say then the dispensationalists have rebuilt that dividing wall. They still have this division between Jew and Gentile. And some of them even talk about being Jewish as if th- this is sufficient. Um, you know, it's good for Jews to believe in Jesus, but is it absolutely necessary? It's not always clear to us that this is, you know, that dispensationalists agree with historic Christianity, that it's absolutely necessary. Um, because there, you know, there are dispensationalists who have tried to become Jews. Uh, you know, they've taken up the Mosaic laws and the ceremonial laws and and so forth. Keep the feasts and the the old Jewish calendar. And we say you've missed the point. The dividing wall has been broken down. And that was one of the things I had to learn when I left my very loosely dispensational evangelical background was that the the dividing wall has been broken down. And um, 
So that's a that's a big difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology. They accuse us of spiritualizing the Bible, and we say, no, we're reading the Bible the way the New Testament does. You people are following a, an approach to reading Scripture that was developed in the 19th century. You're a product of the 19th century. We are historic Christians, and we read the Bible the way the New Testament teaches us uh, to read the Bible, and the way the Protestants read the Bible in the 16th century, and and the Reformed theologians in the 16th and 17th centuries read the Bible. That's that's the way we do it. Um, so that's the, those are the contours of the debate. Are there two peoples or one people? Is there are there multiple potentially multiple ways of salvation, or always and only one? A way of salvation. Does Jesus work for Moses? You know, I'm thinking of Hebrews 3. Or does Moses work for Jesus? Well, Hebrews says that Jesus owns the house and Moses was a worker in the house. So that uh, those are some of the issues. Yeah, my cousin, uh, well, we both grew up in dispensationalism, but his dad is a, is a dispensational pastor and very strong dispensationalist. And he was, he's actually now reformed he's about to join a urc but he was telling me the things that he grew up hearing about uh, what covenant theology does with scripture and as he started studying he said well what i was told wasn't true that is really resonates with my experience it resonates with what i read um, and so one of the great frustrations we on the covenant side have is that while the dispensationalists object that we don't read them. Well, we've read Ryrie, and, and some of us have read Clarence Larkin and, and, and other dispensational writers, uh, Walverd and Schofield and so forth. But have these have the dispensationalists actually sat down and read traditional, classic, Reformed covenant theology? Have they read Witsius? Have they read, um, you know, Olivianus and Ursinus or Coxeus, which is now in English? He, he was a controversial figure, but it was an important book. Uh, have they have they taken the time to actually learn what we say and why we say it? Uh, have they read Bullinger, for example? They they talk about covenant theology as if it was invented in the sometimes they talk about it as if it was invented in the mid to late seventeenth century. And I say, have you read Heinrich Bullinger's uh, on the Testament of God from fifteen thirty four? And they look at me blankly. Um, so yeah, and so it's a it's a that's a source of frustration for me because I've I've yet to have a conversation. Uh, with a dispensationalist, and I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying I haven't had a, haven't had a conversation with a dispensationalist who's well and carefully read in historic covenant theology. Um, so, for what for what that's worth. Well, one of the questions that comes up in our group a lot, and I don't think we've really addressed this before, and I thought it would be good to briefly do so, is what is the difference between Reformed covenant theology and Baptist covenant theology? Well, that's a huge question. <laughs> okay, so. Because, I mean, there, there are, uh, so I, as I understand it, and my, uh, my particular Baptist friends, uh, I, I take it, are a little frustrated with me uh, when I put it this way, though they can't tell me exactly why. They don't seem to be able to articulate why this is wrong. They all seem to, talk, they talk to me, I, I hear these different voices, and they talk to me as if they were all unified, and I really don't think that's the case. So I've identified three different ways that uh, people who, uh, who are some way connected to the particular Baptist tradition um, formulate their, their covenant theology. And the, the two, I think, most important versions of, of this, and the, so these would be people who, to one degree or other, uh, identify with the uh, 
London, Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. And uh, uh, until relatively recently, most of those who so identified um, tended to, to minimize the differences between traditional Reformed theology, uh, summarized in the Westminster Standards and the Westminster Confession particularly, and their own approach. And so they would talk about uh, you know, there being a covenant of grace with Abraham, for example, and that we're in that covenant, that Abraham is our father, and, and, uh, and the difference between the typology, everything that happened before Christ, and the reality is that there's simply more grace and that uh, the new covenant is more eschatological, uh, more of heaven is present, if you will, in the new covenant. That's the big difference. Um, and so that was the way uh, when I first uh, encountered particular Baptist theology, um, sometimes called Reformed Baptist theology, inaccurately, uh, I think, and, and um, I don't think that's a, a helpful way to, to talk, nor is it a particularly historical way to talk, since the particular Baptists in the uh, 17th century called themselves particular Baptists and didn't call themselves Reformed. Um, and to call them Reformed entails a serious redefinition of, of what Reformed means. So, uh, as I, my, my wager is, if you'll let me call myself a Baptist, you can call yourself Reformed. And I've, I've said that many, many times, and, and I have yet to have a Baptist take me up on it. Um, so, uh, that's one version, and that was the version that sort of dominated in American evangelical circles uh, from after World War II until very recently. And and. Quite recently, in the work of Pascal Deneau and Sam Renahan, for example, be two notable names, there's been a pretty radical turn back to 17th century sources in the particular Baptist tradition, and they have begun talking in ways that are rather different from that. So that rather than saying that, yes, the covenant of grace was present under the types and shadows, they want to say that it was witnessed, that it was revealed that it was testified to, but it wasn't actually present. So that's why I say that in Reformed theology, in all Reformed theology, in whatever period of time you're looking, whether it's the 1520s uh, or the 1620s, you know, whenever you're looking, we've always said and confessed, in, in, in effect, that the covenant of grace was in, with, and under the types and shadows. Well, this more radical version, and, and possibly more well-grounded in the particular Baptist tradition, I'll leave that to them to judge. That's uh, probably maybe not my call to make. And I think it's certainly warranted by the uh, uh, London Baptist, Second London, 1689, uh, is that uh, everything that happened prior to the uh, new covenant was only uh, a type and a shadow, but that the covenant of grace doesn't exist in redemptive history until the new covenant. And uh, and so, you, you say, well, what was Abraham? And uh, what I get back from them is it was a covenant of works. Not the covenant of works, but it was a covenant of works. And um, so, th this is a pretty serious departure from basically, I think, traditional Christian theology um, going back to, again, Barnabas, Justin, Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Augustine, you know, going through the Christian tradition uh, through the Middle Ages and, and certainly into the Reformation, that, that we never talk that way. Um, but uh, this is what's being argued now. And, um, and uh, so this is a very—I uh, I, I don't think it, it's at all too much to call this quasi-dispensational 
to say that Abraham was under a covenant of works, not the covenant of works, but a, a kind of covenant of works. Uh, that's certainly not what um, any of our confessions say. Uh, it's not how we've read Scripture. It's not what our theologians say. N- none of our Reformed theologians say that. Not even uh, John Owen um, whom they like to invoke as if he agreed with them. He never talks that way. Um, Moses was a republication of the covenant of works to teach the Israelites the greatness of their sin and misery, but nobody was actually eligible to be saved by o- obeying the law. It was, it was to teach them. Um, and Owen had an, some unusual ways, relatively unusual ways of talking about that, but that's all that he was really saying. Um, so uh, that... Uh, those would be, you know, among the differences that the uh, the new covenant in particular Baptist theology is the covenant of grace. And uh, some would say it's present in types and shadows, and others more recently would say it's not at all present. It's just testified to, it's just anticipated, but it's not actually there, um, which, as I say, entails, I think, Christological problems, because then it means you, you've excluded God the Son from acting in redemptive history until the new covenant. He's not actually there. He's, um, the, you know, that rock was Christ. Well, they end up saying, well, not really. That rock wasn't really Christ. And, um, and grace isn't really present, uh, which I, 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 you know, I, yeah, the, I, uh, my abhorrence at this way of formulating things is hard to articulate. So, but at, at any rate, um, that's the way that uh, discussion goes. And so you, people have a choice to make. Um, again, is there one covenant of grace with one plan of salvation that's administered in various ways? Uh, under types and shadows that were bloody under Moses and Abraham, you know, he had circumcision pointing forward to the death of Christ. He had lambs uh, sacrificed and bulls and goats pointing forward to the obedience and death of Christ. Um, all, all of those things coming in, uh, you know, the Lord, or he had Passover, all coming to, uh, pointing to Christ and coming to fruition in the obedience, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ. Um, and uh, that we're all part of this one people of God that has a variety of of expressions in the history of redemption, that that would be the reformed way of doing it, or you've got the particular bap- the, the two different major particular Baptist ways of doing it, or you've got the dispensational way of doing it. Thank you. That is really helpful. Uh, part of what we wanted to do in talking about this series, uh, especially as connected to the church, is looking at how covenant theology and a covenant approach to Christianity. What is what is the covenantal approach to the Christian life? Yeah, that's a, a great question, and it's a, I think it's a really important topic, and it's probably a topic that doesn't get uh, enough attention, uh, because there are, there are different uh, ways of thinking about how we relate to our children, uh, how, we, how we raise our children, how we think about the visible institutional church, um, uh, and and I think the reformed way of thinking about these things is is different from the evangelical broadly evangelical way of thinking about it. Uh, it's uh, different from uh, I think the particular Baptist way of thinking about it. At least some of the particular Baptist ways of thinking about it. Um, 
I think I think in general, most of the time, there's a kind of blessed inconsistency where I see my particular Baptist friends, and I do have lots of particular Baptist friends. I, I want the listener to know that. I'm, I'm not being mean or, or I'm not angry. Um, I have lots of particular Baptist friends, even though we have – oh, there's the Heidel dog. Um, we have uh, significant disagreements. Um, so this isn't personal, but this is about principle and truth. And uh, But it, so it, ma- it makes a difference with the way we raise our, our kids. Do we think of our children as those who belong to the visible covenant community, who, whom God has uh, commanded uh, to be included, not excluded, but included uh, externally, outwardly, into the visible covenant community? And we know it used to happen, right? Nobody doubts that used to happen. Um, one of the first things God said to Abraham is, you will set aside, right, initiate into the visible covenant people your, uh, your son by the time he's eight days old. And if you don't do that, here are the consequences. He took it very seriously. And we know he takes it seriously because um, apparently Moses didn't circumcise one of his sons, and the Lord came looking for him, right? Right? Zipporah opens the door. This is early on in Exodus. And she opens the door. There's Yahweh trying to come to kill Moses. She shuts the door and runs runs back in and says, you know, it's a, it's a hard expression to understand. But she basically seems to say, you know, one way of interpreting what she says is, are you trying to get us killed? Um, and uh, quickly the, the boy is circumcised and, and everything's okay. The, the point of the narrative is, uh, God takes this seriously. Moses was unfaithful, and God takes this very seriously. And so the question is, did God change that pattern? Is that pattern so part of the typological way of doing business, the types and shadows, the illustrations, the anticipations, that that the initiation of covenant children into the visible covenant community and the dealing with households, right? Uh, this is the pattern that we see in Genesis 17. It's the pattern we see all through Isaiah and Jeremiah again and again. Is this pattern still there? And we say, yes, it is there. And we see it in uh, Acts 2.39. I will be a God to you, uh, for the promise, he says, is to you and to your children and to, in effect, the Gentiles who are far off because the gospel is going to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So we see a continuity between Acts 2.39, 38 and 39, and Genesis uh, you know, 12, 15, and 17. That God has always dealt with uh, units, and by dealt with, we mean included them in the external administration of the covenant of grace. So they're part of the visible covenant community. They get to participate in it, and we treat them as members of the visible covenant community. No, we're not saying that circumcision regenerated anybody, and we're not saying that baptism regenerates anyone necessarily, right? We're saying this is the way God has commanded us to regard our children and to raise our children. We include them in the visible covenant community. And, and you say, what does that mean? Well, they're members of the visible church. Yeah, but they're not Christians. Well, you, maybe we don't know that. Right? Uh, you're not God. You can't see their little hearts. Um, so uh, that's for God to decide. Our, our business is to treat them the way God tells us to treat them. Um, but they haven't made profession of faith. Well, that's right. Isaac hadn't made profession, and, and he was circumcised. And we think that pattern of including outwardly, officially, children into the covenant people is still in force. And, and you say, well, where was it commanded? And we say, where was it revoked? Right? When did God say, well, 
I, I, I will be a God to you and to your children. That used to be the case, but it's not the case anymore. And we say, well, it certainly is the case. Peter says it. And, and we see it practiced in Acts 16 and other places. We see actual household baptisms. So that's, I think that makes a large difference. You know, there are cases where I know personally of cases where people have talked about, people who are not Reformed, have talked about their children as if they were um, um, unregenerate until they have made profession of faith and, and are baptized. And they're treated as if they were uh, unregenerate. There, there's a, a notable Christian author who uh, announced on his blog some years ago that he believes his children, who I don't think were old enough at that point to make profession of faith, to be unregenerate. And, um, you know, and from a reform point of view, to see someone uh, say that in public is, is astounding. Um, because... As I said before, we're not God. Um, we, we treat our children like believers, and we expect them to believe. We pray for them. We catechize them. We include them in, in church. We don't ship them off uh, to children's church. They're part of the visible covenant community. We, and uh, and uh, we raise them in the fear and admonition and the nurture of the Lord. Uh, well, it depends on what one means by that. Um, it's it's true. Um, I think that expression comes from Edwards, and uh, in the sense in which he meant it, it it's probably true that that all children are, uh, you know, conceived and born in sin and dead, you know, by nature, dead in sins and trespasses. But it doesn't uh, mean that they're not also part of the visible covenant community. Um, and so there, there's a real paradigm difference here between the way the, the Reformed people think about this um, and, um, and the way uh, a lot of American evangelicals, particularly Baptists, think about this. Now, again, some Baptists do raise their kids practically pretty much the way we do. Uh, they just don't administer the sign to them. But there are some uh, traditions in which until you've had some kind of conversion experience that somebody can document, you're regarded as unregenerate and treated that way. Um, so that there's almost a degree of hostility. And, uh, you know, I think those, somebody could say, well, that's an extreme case. And, and, and my reply is, well, I hope that's the case. I hope that's an extreme and a minority. Um, but it's, I've seen it often enough uh, to, to know that it really exists and that it's not just a, a hyper, you know, some sort of mean-spirited, reformed hyperbole. So in, in your book, Recovering the Reformed Confessions, which will... Uh, link in the episode notes and we recommend you talk about the quest for illegitimate religious experience and illegitimate religious certainty how are those things different than a covenantal approach so uh, quirk and choir the quirk is the quest for illegitimate religious certainty and this is the desire to know frankly things that we can't know Uh, for example uh, uh, people think, I know exactly when I was regenerated. Well, actually, you don't. You know when you began to, to be a, aware of things. But you, uh, uh, Jesus, says, he, Jesus said, literally, you don't know where the wind blows. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. So it is with the Holy Spirit. And yet people turn around and they tell me, well, I know. Yeah, but Jesus says you don't know. And I trust Jesus more than I trust your interpretation of your experience. So people want to know... Um, you know, uh, all kinds of things. Exactly how long the creation days were. Well, um, 
Maybe you you know you you could be right that that the, after the days uh, after the sun was created that um, those are twenty four hour days. That's possible, but it's hard to say the days prior to the sun were twenty four hours. They may be, but you couldn't be certain. Why? Because there's no sun, and we measure twenty four hours literally with the sun. So, uh, and then people want to use that as a measure of orthodoxy. So th- this is the the critique of quirk, and uh, so this uh, it applies here. You know, King James only is a, an example of quirk. The Federal Vision is an example of quirk as an attempt to set up a machine whereby people are made into Christians. Um, you know, uh, theonomy is an example of quirk. So there's a lot of examples of, of quirk. Um, an attempt to find certainty on things on which, by definition, we, we can't be certain. Um, and uh, it applies here in that uh, people think that that they know when a, a person was regenerated, and now it's okay. We can baptize this person. Um, there, we 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 know that they're regenerated, and we uh, believe their profession of faith. And now we're going to baptize them, and uh, we're not going to baptize anybody until they meet that test. I mean, obviously, we baptize uh, hitherto unbaptized adults. And we have to go by their credible profession. Uh, we exercise what's known as the judgment of charity. Uh, but the but the, the Baptists have extended that or, or changed that as to say, until you can meet that test, you nobody can be baptized. And uh, uh, so that the baptism really becomes a testimony of, of what's happened in you rather than a testimony, uh, a, a sacrament, a declaration— a sign and a seal of the promise of the covenant of grace. I will be a God to you and to your children after you. Um, so it changes the character of the thing in a way that is driven by quirk. And choir is the quest for illegitimate religious experience. This is my way of getting at revivalism, not revival per se. If the Holy Spirit wants to send a revival, there's nothing I can do about that, right? That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and I agree with him. Um, if there are a real Holy Spirit-sent revival— uh, would be a marvelous thing, and um, I'd be the last person to, to oppose that. Uh, what's in doubt is whether the 18th century revival, the so-called First Great Awakening, really was such a thing. Uh, church attendance after it was lower than church attendance before it, and if that's a good measure, then it wasn't very successful. Um, as, as, uh, as much as people love the, the literature and, and love to tell the story, there are, there are real problems, and there were Reformed confessional people in the 18th century who are actually at the very at that same time concerned about it and uh, essentially what happened was whenever they raised questions they were denounced as unregenerate uh, Whitfield did it Edwards did it Gilbert Tennant did it um, Tennant apologized later on for doing it so to his credit but that was their first instinct um, so uh, this applies to the debate or with our Baptist friends in as much as uh, again we're talking about uh, the sort of quest for a particular kind of religious experience. And um, I, you know, and again, I always have to add, whenever we talk about this, I'm not against religious experience. I'm against the quest for illegitimate religious experience. Uh, and that's the quest to ex- encounter Christ apart from the due use of ordinary means. Um, and and, a, and, a, and a, an attempt to experience uh, a kind of unmediated encounter with the risen Christ. And um, 
And so, I guess, in a sense, the the debate with the Baptists reflects on that in as much as we're looking, sometimes anyway, not not not, not in every case, but sometimes we're, we seem to be looking for a, a particular quality of religious experience. And um, my argument is, I think Paul is a lot more interested in the fruit of the Spirit than he is in particular kinds of religious experience. And um, and so I think there are, those are two different paradigms. Um, I think that's why Jonathan Edwards wrote uh, on religious affections. He was trying to set up a test so that people could know whether they were having the right kind of religious experience. I think that whole project is is completely misguided. Um, as much as we value religious experience, and it's a deep, rich part of the Reformed tradition and the broader Christian tradition before the Reformation. Um, it needs to be centered around word and sacrament. It needs to be centered on Christ. It needs to be centered on the gospel. And um, and typically, when we're talking about the choir, the quest for illegitimate religious experience, it isn't centered on any of those things. It's centered on what's happening within me and what can I do to facilitate that. So that turns into the Second Great Awakening and all of the excesses that accompanied those so-called revivals. Um, and what we still see today, right? Um, you know, Pentecostalism didn't drop out of the sky, you know, at Topeka and Azusa Street at the turn of the 20th century. Those are related to things that had gone on before, a century before uh, the turn of the uh, 19th century at Cane Ridge in Kentucky. And these ways of thinking about the Christian life have really dominated American evangelicalism since the 18th century. And I'm saying the Reformed, confessional Reformed program is is really very different from that. It's an alternative. You've kind of touched a little bit on it so far in, in discussing um, the covenant approach to Christian life, but I wanted to ask, too, how does covenant theology influence our ecclesiology, our beliefs about the church itself? Well, we see the church as the visible covenant community. This is the this is the sphere where God outwardly administers his uh, word— and the two sacraments that, that uh, Christ instituted, holy baptism and holy communion, and, and where Christians are nurtured in the faith, and this is where people come to faith, and where they grow in the faith, and where they're sanctified. So th- this is a different way of, of thinking about the Christian life than I think, certainly than I was taught as a young evangelical, right? So as a, as a teenager coming into the evangelical church from the outside, I was taught that uh, the church is kind of a basket uh, that conversion happens oftentimes outside the church, although we had an altar call every Sunday. Uh, so, I mean, conversion could happen there, too. But uh, uh, the most of the Christian life is conducted outside the church, and the church is kind of a basket where they're, we kind of gather together. And, and it, almost it was a formality in some ways. And, uh, and the Reformed want to say, no, the church is God's plan for your family. The church is God's plan for your Christian life. The church is the way, uh, the instrument, if you will, the, the location where God has promised to uh, fulfill his promise to bring all of his elect to uh, new life and true faith, including uh, those of your children whom he has elected from all eternity. So remember, we, you know, election is still election, and the administration, the outward administration doesn't change the decree. It's just that God 
works out his decree through the use of means. And this separates us again from the revivalists who are more skeptical about means. Um, I said revivalists, right? So people who are deeply indebted to the first great awakening and the second great awakening tend to have a lower view of what we call the means of grace, these instruments that God has promised to use to bring his elect to new life and true faith. So we expose them to the hearing of the gospel by taking them to church with us. And uh, we pray with them and um, we catechize them. We, we teach them the, the Christian faith. Uh, we teach them the scriptures. Uh, we teach them to sing the, the psalms and so forth. And, um, and, through, and we, we pray with them at dinner and we pray with them before bed and we read scripture at home. And through these things, we expect that God the Holy Spirit is going to use them to bring his his elect to new life and true faith. And, and where we disagree with the Baptists is, we say, there's a difference between receiving what is promised in the, in the covenant, that is what we call the substance of the covenant, and the external administration. Our Baptist friends say, well, you can have the administration once you have the substance. And we say, no, it's through participating in the outward administration that you get, to, you get the substance. So we don't wait to find out whether you have the substance before you can participate. We say, come on in and participate, and it's through participating that God grants you sovereignly, graciously, new life and true faith. You know, it's interesting you were saying, uh, when you talked about the difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism, and you talked a little bit about the rapture and the pre-tribulation, and um, I remember when the Left Behind series first came out, and I love to read fantasy, sci-fi, fiction books. It's great. But I read one, the first one, and I remember thinking early on, because you know, the, the premise of the first thing, is that first book, is it's after the church has been raptured out and everyone who's left behind are the non-believers and the church is completely taken out. And I remember thinking how depressing an, an idea of life would be that God has completely removed the ordinary means of grace, the church, his presence through the church, completely from society, and left people to, to blindly find him now. Yeah. Life is full of guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. <laughs> exactly. It's I awful. wish we'd all been ready. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, there are times of tribulation in the history of the church. But it's it's uh, it's a fairly modern idea that, um, and really without warrant in Scripture, that God's going to uh, secretly rapture out His, uh, you know, those who believe, because it's not even always attached to the doctrine of election. Um, I mean, think about all of those believers who were. Uh, marched into at the point, literally at the point of a sword, marched into a Roman circus, uh, uh, a coliseum, and uh, and uh, uh, literally thrown to the uh, lions, or who were burned to death. Where was the rapture for them? I mean, uh, the, the in the whole history of the church, we've always suffered, and and so uh, Christians are suffering now. Um, Christians are suffering in Nigeria. Uh, Christians are uh, suffering in China. Obviously, ma many people are suffering in China right now, but uh, particularly uh, Christians um, uh, up to the coronavirus were undergoing a significant, uh, we'll say, pressuring and possibly even persecution in China. So that that's the nature of, of Christian existence until Jesus comes again. And, and um, so it... it um, uh, and his promise is, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Not, you know, hang on, and just when things get tough, I'm going to secretly rapture you away. And if you just look at the passages to which people appeal, 
uh, there isn't anything in them about a rapture. Uh, in Matthew 24, when Jesus uh, talks about two people working and one once taken and one's left behind, if you read the passage carefully, you'll notice he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. Two will be working, and one's taken, and, and the other's left behind. Right? The, the floodwaters came, he said, and, and uh, you know, Noah preached, and the floodwaters came and, and took the, the unbelievers. Well, you don't want to be taken, you want to be left behind. Follow the analogy. Pay attention to the analogy. And the same thing with 1 Thessalonians 4. The, there's no secret rapture. You're not going to be, you know, if you remember the uh, uh, Thief in the Night uh, video, or the Thief in the Night film, the guy's standing there at the, uh, at the, or at least he was, putatively standing there uh, with the electric razor, and uh, she goes and looks, and there's the razor buzzing, you know, on the counter because he's been secretly raptured. No, the rapture... Uh, such as it is in in 1 Thessalonians 4, is not secret at all. Jesus comes. It's very noisy. He's announced. He's a triumphing king. Um, He's returning, um, and he is going to collect his people. Um, And we go to meet him as he comes down, and we meet him the way you meet a visiting dignitary. But there's nothing secret about it. And in in that sense, it's not really a rapture, at least not in the way people typically use that word. Uh, so there's very little actual biblical basis for the doctrine of the secret rapture, by the way. Yeah, I grew up on those movies, the Deep in the Night and all of those movies, and um, had nightmares. But I would go to my youth pastor and say, so explain to me how this is true from Scripture, and he would try. And I was a pain, because I'd say, are you sure? I don't think... <laughs> I don't think that's what it says. And he got very frustrated with me. Uh, well, look at the context. I mean, the scripture, <laughs> right? Exactly. Right? If you, you look at the context of the various passages, and on its own, what is this passage trying to do? Right? On its own terms. Not, does it, and, and then ask yourself, is this what's being clearly taught, the rapture? Is it even being implied in this passage? And my answer was no. Uh, and I looked at these par- very carefully, uh, did exegetical papers on, um, or a paper on First uh, Thessalonians 4, worked through that very carefully in the original text and looking at the context and so forth. And same thing with, uh, with, with, with our Lord's uh, Olivet Discourse when he, when he talks about that. So um, it, it just doesn't sustain biblical scrutiny. So it's not that we don't believe the Bible, it's that we who reject the secret rapture and the you know, literal thousand years and the seven-year tribulation, we just don't see it in the Word of God. Um, you know, yes, the, there is a millennium mentioned in Revelation 20. Well, what's the nature of the revelation from chapter 3 to the end of the book? It's highly symbolic. And you're going to tell me, out of all of those symbols, that the thousand years in chapter 20, well, that's literal. Well, on what basis? How are you not being arbitrary and subjective? How are you not just making it up as you go along? I'm willing to be persuaded, but you have to make an argument that makes sense of the rest of the book and isn't made up of what's called special pleading. Well, yes, the book is symbolic, but not this chapter. That's the, that is the definition of special pleading. So, we've, you've talked a little bit about baptism and our children, but what What's the significance of the means of grace in a covenantal approach? It, the significance is that these are the, the instruments that God has ordained. So the preaching of the Holy Gospel, uh, the official proclamation of the Holy Gospel. We believe God has instituted officers whose job it is to stand in the pulpit and announce the law and the gospel. 
to expound and exposit the Word of God, and that God uses that. According to Romans 10, right? Um, how will they hear in, 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 uh, unless there's a preacher, and how will, they, how, how will anyone preach unless they're sent, right? And um, how will they come to faith unless they hear? I mean, Paul makes this connection explicitly in Romans 10. This is how God has ordained to work, and it's how he's always worked. He instituted feasts looking forward to Christ under the uh, old uh, Testament and the Old Covenant, and he's fulfilled all of those bloody types and shadows, the Passover feast, and um, as I say, and all the other feasts, the monthly, the new moons, and the, you know, which were monthly, the, the monthly Sabbaths, that's what he means when he says new moons and Sabbaths. Um, all of those things have been fulfilled uh, in Christ, but he's always used them to strengthen the faith of his people and to uh, and to bring his people to new life and true faith. So we we outwardly initiate our children into the visible covenant community using uh, baptism, which we call a sacrament. And all that sacrament simply means a sign and a seal. It doesn't mean magic. We outwardly initiate that child, and, and we include them outwardly into the visible covenant community. And uh, and uh, when they so they're initiated in baptism, and when they make profession of faith then uh, they're admitted to the Lord's table. And, and at the Lord's table, their faith is strengthened and it's nourished, it's renewed. So one is a sign of initiation and the other is the sign of nourishment or nutrition and strengthening and renewal. And so God uses that. So our, as we are hearing the gospel preached and the law preached where we know our greatness and sin and misery and we hear the law preached as the, as the norm for the Christian life, um, then um, and there, there's another difference between dispensationalism and reform theology. We understand the Ten Commandments to be part of the Christian life, not to be saved or to be justified, but because we have been saved and we have been justified. Because we understand that the same law that was given in creation was restated at at uh, Sinai, and and Jesus said that's the moral law, Matthew twenty two thirty seven through forty, and that's the law to which uh, Paul appeals at the end of his epistles regularly, and Peter as well. So uh, so we 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 teach the law in its appropriate uses. We talk about three uses of the, of the law. And so through these ways, the preaching of the gospel, the use of the sacraments, uh, through prayer, and, uh, and even through the disciplinary work of the church, th- this is the way, the, this is the sphere, these are the means that God has ordained to bring his elect to new life and true faith and to strengthen them um, in the context of the church and in the context of the Christian family. You know, right now with uh, churches being unable to meet for the most part, um, what are some ways, and, and I know I saw you posted something on the Heidel blog about um, ways to do, um, to worship at home together as a family. What are some ways that we can use or uh, avail ourselves of the ordinary means of grace while we're at home and unable to gather well, that, yeah, again, that's a great uh, question, Rachel, and it's obviously difficult. Uh, our congregation is not going to be able to meet again this Lord's Day. Uh, we're going to uh, stream a sermon from the pastor, and uh, there'll be a simple uh, service of prayer and, and preaching. So uh, we, aren't, we don't have access to all the means of grace. Um, we're not together, obviously, and we can't replicate that. I, I know of one congregation, at least, that's going to be using Zoom, right? That's how we're meeting is by Zoom, and they're going to conference in together, so that will be interesting. We're all getting to learn Zoom, and, and um, uh, so, that, um, so that, that's an interesting possibility. I don't know if that will work for everyone everywhere, um, but uh, 
yeah, on the Heidel blog at heidelblog.net, H-E-I-D-E-L-B-L-O-G.net, there is on the front page there a post that says, A Guide for Your Devotions on the Christian Sabbath. And there I've listed uh, things that you can do, right? If, uh, if you're not ordained uh, and, and you're not authorized to conduct Christian worship services, you're not a pastor, um, you don't have an office that Paul instituted in, or describes anyway in, in uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Uh, but uh, any Christian can do this. Christian parents, uh, mom or dad, if dad's not there, uh, mom, uh, you can open with prayer. Uh, anybody can sing a psalm, and I give you an example of of, of uh, the tune of Psalm 100, uh, which in the Psalter hymnal that we use is 100B, uh, the old hundredth. You can sing a psalm in response to God's Word, and this is how Reformed people uh, worship. God speaks through His Word, and we respond with His Word. Um, then there's a prayer listed, and I and I give you a resource where you can find more uh, more prayers that you can use so that you don't have to struggle with what to say. Um, not to say you can't pray from the heart or you can't pray extemporaneously, but here's a structure that will help you know how to pray and what to pray. Uh, then uh, I, I give uh, the Ten Commandments that, that we, we read in our services. You can read that to your uh, children, and um, you, you know, you dads can read that. You moms can read that to your children, and, um, and then we confess our sins, and there's a confession of sin given there. And a promise of forgiveness. Lots of promises of forgiveness in the scriptures, but the one we often go to is First John one nine, and then we respond to the good news by reading a a passage of scripture, or maybe singing a psalm again, or singing a passage of scripture. So Exodus fifteen, and I gave a link to the passage. Um, and then, uh, you know, you could read a passage. And again, these are just examples. I gave Exodus 14. It's kind of out of order, but it works liturgically. Um, and then a prayer of thanksgiving and, and what we call the great prayer or the long prayer or the pastoral prayer. And you can, you can do this. Um, and then uh, a little catechetical instruction. And I, and I thought it was imp- appropriate to, for Christians to read Heidelberg uh, Catechism Question and Answer 1. You know, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And um, that seems to be appropriate in a time of suffering and affliction. Uh, then a, a psalm, and again, a very well-known psalm. I pick Psalm 23. Uh, the tune is Crimmond, which everybody knows, right? Um, I, won't, I won't trouble people by, by singing it again. I'm sorry for singing before. And, uh, and then a closing prayer, uh, closing with the Lord's Prayer, which our Lord Jesus gave us. And then I gave some, some possibilities of things you could do in the evening, uh, if you wanted to gather again, as you might on the on the Sabbath, in the morning and evening. Um, so uh, this is a way for Christians to gather together as families and to have devotions. You could uh, listen. Uh, one of the things I suggest is, you know, you could stream a sermon, uh, listen to uh, a service, and you could kind of build that into this uh, devotional pattern uh, that I gave you here. Just a template, right, that you can fill in with different things. And um, so... You know, we, we have this marvelous technology. You know, here you and I are separated by who knows how many miles, and, and we are able to talk. And uh, so we can do this now, and uh, we should capitalize on this, uh, not to replace the gathering. And, and, you know, when things are better and we, we trust and pray that will be soon, uh, you know, we give thanks for these uh, extraordinary ways of getting together and—, and and then we will return to our ordinary pattern of gathering together on the, on the Lord's Day. So I think we've all seen some interesting speculation 
about what's going on. I've seen some dispensationalist posts trying to link the coronavirus to some prophecy. And I've even seen some theonomists saying that this is uh, some sort of punishment uh, on, our, on us. So how does covenant theology inform our understanding of extraordinary events like what we're going through right now? You know, that's a, a, a again, Colleen, that's a great question. And I, I think in general, I mean, there, yeah, when you put it that way, it makes it a little harder to answer because traditionally, right, so to get all our cards on the table, traditionally, Reformed people did uh, say in the 16th and 17th centuries, that, well, this is a judgment on the nation for X, Y, and Z. And, um, and they were pretty bold about that. And there are people who want to continue, who, who want to do that today and say that, uh, th- that, that the coronavirus is a judgment, a, a particular judgment on this particular sin. And, uh, and my response is, well, we also, Scotland also thought in the 17th century and in the 16th century that God had made a national covenant or they had made a national covenant with God and that they could be a kind of national people again. And, uh, I, I think that's a pretty significant mistake. I don't think that anything is like that is possible after the incarnation and after, particularly after the death of Jesus. That was the end of any national people, and so Scotland wasn't the national people of God, and um, and, and uh, so we we need to distinguish. and And I argue, uh, and again, you can find this on the Heidel blog at heidelblog dot net um, that. Uh, you know, when we, add, we 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 can say the title of the article is "What is God telling us through the coronavirus?" And I I think we can agree that God is telling us something through the coronavirus, and Jesus tells us what He's telling us, uh, and, and what He's t- uh, telling us is that all these things are warnings. In Luke thirteen, uh, when they were talking about the Tower of Siloam, uh, uh, Jesus said. And so, because people were saying, well, in, in fact, who sinned? These people are their parents. This is the language that was used in John 9. Uh, our Lord Jesus said, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The inference that Jesus drew wasn't that, well, these Galileans are particularly sinful, and therefore a particular judgment was placed on them. He, uh, Jesus uh, in, inferred from it that th- th- uh, this thing happened as a kind of warning, um, that we all are in jeopardy, and we all need to repent and, and believe in him. And, th- and that's what we should do with the coronavirus. Right, all these things are warnings. Um, you know, we think we're everything is fine. We think we're in charge. We think we're enlightened. We think we're super sophisticated until we're all reduced to medieval life, right? Fighting over toilet paper, uh, which is a little beyond medieval life. But, uh, but you know, you can see medieval life from here, right? If all the toilet paper went away, um, medieval life would come back very quickly. Um, so. Uh, you know, we're not as sophisticated as, as we think. Uh, all it would take is an earthquake to knock out uh, the internet and knock out cell towers. And um, and our very sophisticated life would be reduced to, to a very basic life altogether. We'd find out that we're not as clever as we think we are. So these are warnings. 
uh, whatever they are. You know, people said, well, 9-11 happened because America did X, Y, and Z. Well, in fact, you don't actually know that. What we know is that God sovereignly ordains all things that take place. And there is evil in the world. And, and when we see the effects of the fall and when we see these evils, uh, we, ought to, we ought to get on our knees as individuals, uh, particularly, and as congregations. And, and, and we, ought, we ought to say to our neighbors, you know, God is in his heaven, and Jesus is still the, the Savior. And there's no uh, way to get to God apart from Jesus Christ. And you and everyone need to repent and believe in Jesus. That's what this means. And we ought to be very careful. Are, are they judgments of a kind? Well, yeah, we can call them judgments, but we want to be careful about what kinds of causal connections we draw and what kind of correlations we, we create, right? Um, yes, is, is America culpable for permitting uh, millions of abortions every year? Absolutely. Can you, can you say, well, that's why 9-11 happened, or that's why the coronavirus happened, or that's why the swine flu happened? Well, no, you actually, you can't do that. You don't know that. Um, is God displeased with mass murder? Absolutely. Are, uh, are, is he going to hold those accountable who, who facilitate this and who perform these things? Absolutely. Um, so we, we, can say, oh, we can say more than one thing at one time. Just uh, one more question that I thought of when you were talking. There's, I think the majority of people, uh, Christians, understand why it's wise to not meet during this virus. But there are some people that say that it's disobedient to not meet. Uh, could you address that? Um, yes. I don't see how they know that. Um, I, I'm, I think, again, this is a, a place where we need to exercise charity and where we need to respect um, uh, differing opinions because we're all drawing inferences from Scripture, and and uh, this is a very difficult inference to draw that anybody who reaches a different conclusion than I do about how we ought to respond to a, a pandemic is in sin. Again, this is, I think, evidence of the quirky mindset, the quest for illegitimate religious certainty. Uh, that, and one manifestation of this is to, is to say, you know, I know what God thinks. My, my intellect has ascended and intersected with God's intellect. And so anybody who disagrees with me is disagreeing with God. And that's a very tempting way to go, but it's a really wrong way to go. It's a serious mistake. Because your intellect isn't God's intellect. And um, you, you don't know with certainty that, in fact, it is sin not to meet. Um, and if, in the history of, of the Christian church, contrary to some things I've read, um, it, it, it did happen that Christians were not able to meet or they were forced to meet in small groups, whether we're thinking about the plague sweeping through Europe in the, in the 14th century, in the 1340s, and um, the plague re returning periodically uh, thereafter. Um, and chasing people out of town where everything was shut down and uh, there were plague hospitals set up, and, and, and uh, but everybody else was forced to leave except maybe some ministers who stayed behind to minister to those who couldn't leave. Um, and services were not able to be held uh, during the Spanish persecution of the of the reformed in the lowlands in the 1560s uh, through the through the early 70s. The uh, reformed were forced to meet in small groups and not always with ministers. Um, th those were extraordinary. They weren't able to gather in congregations because the Spanish, if they caught them gathering in congregations, would slaughter them. 
Um, and they would occasionally, if a minister was able to, to come and visit them, they would have a, a large gathering uh, out of outside of town, and, and uh, they took extraordinary measures. But as soon as the Spanish came, they would disperse. So I think we have to be really careful about this and, um, and to be uh, charitable. Um, you know, in our congregation, we have a, a significant number of seniors who are at risk. And it, it's just, in our judgment, I think, not to speak for the consistory, so I'm, I'm not on the consistory, but I think it's the consistory's judgment that, that we don't have a right to place them at risk. And uh, by uh, by meeting uh, with them, uh, we probably have in the congregation people who are asymptomatic and who are, as they say in the medical business, vectors, right, uh, carriers of this. Who, if they intersect with these saints, will put them in in jeopardy. And uh, so, churches are some churches anyway. Congregations are being cautious and um, and not meeting in 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 honor of the instructions. That are being given. As far as I know, no one's passed any laws yet. Um, although I guess uh, that being said, the public health officer in San Diego County this week has limited gatherings now to ten people, and um, and that has the that has the force of law. That's the same but in the, Texas. So the these uh, so these instructions in some places, laws in other places, are not being instituted because we're Christians. They're being instituted because we're human beings, and even though we're Christians, we could be carrying the virus and not know it, and communicate it to other people. And it, from all I'm able to tell, it it, it uh, uh, is about ten times deadlier than the flu, and it and it is much easier to transmit even than the than the seasonal flu. So this is. Uh, as far as I know, and I'm I'm not a public health officer, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm just a historian, but as far as I'm able to tell from what I'm able to read, that uh, this seems to be a particularly dangerous uh, virus. Um, the report by the Royal, uh, no, Imperial College of Medicine, I guess it was, uh, was published yesterday, and um, I, I saw some synopses of it. I have not read it my, myself yet, but... Um, been busy trying to adapt to uh, life online professionally, but uh, but from what I'm able to tell, um, that is one of the reports that really frightened the authorities and made them take these extraordinary measures. And Romans 13, as I keep saying, is in the Bible. Uh, the magistrate is a minister of God, and he does have a right to, uh, in a sense, protect us from ourselves and uh, protect us, uh, protect public health. And to try to prevent uh, a mass extermination of uh, of seniors and others with underlying conditions, uh, one uh, extrapolation I saw said that if, if left un- unchecked, this virus could wipe out four million people, which would be extraordinary and uh, seems like something charity demands that we try to prevent. I was just going to say, you know, I live in a place in in Houston and. Between flooding and hurricanes, it is not uncommon for us to have times when we can't meet. It's it's not it's yeah. not that unusual to say, okay, we we just can't meet this week. So it, in some yeah. ways, the the talk about well, you know, we're we're neglecting to meet like the gathering of saints, et cetera, the those charges. And this is it's odd to me to use it that way when the church has always dealt with things either local or or more widespread that we have we have to consider. Um, well, I hope those people who are invoking Hebrews ten twenty five to this end will invoke it at Christmas time next year, when people take off right uh, the the first Sunday after Christmas or this or, or the first Sunday around Christmas. You know, um, lots of congregations have taken the I think the very bad habit of closing down for that 
uh, for that Sunday. I think that's, you know, that would be an appropriate time to invoke Hebrews 10.25. But in the midst of a public health crisis where, frankly, nobody quite knows exactly what to do, and I think people are, I, I trust, making the best judgment they can about what to do in light of what they know. I understand there are a lot of people who are very suspicious of all the government authorities. And and to be sure, you know, we are, I'm an American and I think we ought to keep an eye on, you know, what our government officials are doing. And, and if they're trying to use this to you know, uh, strengthen their control over us, I think we ought to pay attention to that. But, you know, that's certainly a possibility. But until we know otherwise, we have a responsibility to to submit to them, especially if they're not asking us to do something that is plainly sinful, um, right? So when they when the magistrate should the magistrate tell us you may not pray in the name of Jesus, or you have to say that um, you know Caesar is is Lord, and you have to renounce Jesus? Well, okay, at that point now it's time to you know to be a martyr, I guess, if that's the choice. But that we're not there yet. Uh, we're we're dealing with a plague, a public health menace. Um. Well, thank you for joining us. This was really helpful. This is going to be our first episode in a series we're starting on the church, and we really thought this was the best topic to start with. And I, the articles that you mentioned that you did, the family worship one, and uh, what is God telling us through the coronavirus. I'm going to link those in the episode notes and then also a link to your book, which we also recommend. It's always a joy to talk to you gals. Thank you so much for your faithfulness and, um, uh, and for pressing on. So it, it, I, um, you, you are uh, helping. I know I can tell lots of people and, um, and bringing reformation to folks who otherwise wouldn't uh, have access to it. So I'm grateful for all that you do. And thanks for including me. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Well, thank you very much. Well, we will be back next week. <laughs>